0: Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. Okay, let go. go. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie at least one of us on the show has never seen before. Uh, I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 89, and the movie that we watched this week was 1950's Sunset Boulevard, which I had never seen before. So coming on to talk with me about it is Lisa from I Love That Movie. How are you doing, Lisa?
1: Hey, Travis. I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I am quite well, actually. So I had never seen this movie before. I knew of it, but all I really knew was, was the one, you know, the most famous quote, uh, which is, you know, funny enough, often misquoted of the, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up." But beyond that, I didn't know a whole lot about this movie. Um, so normally I would ask my guests, why haven't you seen this movie before? But I would like to know why you chose this as something you would want to share.
1: Um, well, I guess I, I actually, when you, you told me that, um, to be a guest on this podcast, you typically pick a movie that you haven't seen before and to be a hundred percent transparent with you, I went and looked up some classic movies and then I was just like, if I, uh, you know, once I see a title, cause there's, you know, I haven't seen everything. So there's endless possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. So I looked for one that I've thought about checking out two or three times and never actually pressed play. And so that's why I picked Sunset Boulevard.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time with the movie. Um, What did you think?
1: I feel the same way. I think I walked in thinking one thing, and then, you know, my expectations were totally blown away, and I really enjoyed it. Although, I'm kind of, a part of me is like, am I I a bad person? I feel like maybe I like this movie for the wrong reasons, but I'm sure (laughs) we'll get into that.
0: (laughs) could be. I I didn't expect that it was going to be sort of a a noir film um with the and it's not really a murder mystery per se although there is a murder right. in it um but I I just I wasn't sure what I was expecting from the movie but I was very pleasantly surprised with what the end product was. Yes. Um, and it starts out right away with, you know, the classic noir voiceover, which I have talked on this show multiple times about voiceovers in movies. And I have a, an odd love-hate relationship with them. Some, And it's all movie-dependent. Some movies, it just works. In a, in a good noir movie, in the voiceover that they used, we talked about a couple weeks ago, in Big Lebowski really works. Right. In, in this film, it works. There's other times where I hate it. I hated it in Blade Runner. Um, yes, you know, taking, I'm, I'm with you <laughs> it, and and it, and it's funny because a lot of times a voiceover like that, if it's used right, adds to a movie, it adds to the, what you're, what you're seeing on screen. But when it's done wrong, when it's done, like Blade Runners was, it, it makes you as an audience feel dumb because it's just overly blatantly pointing everything out to you.
1: Especially when you have insider information as we do with Blade Runner, that that was not something the director wanted and it's something the studio wanted. And that's always a, a big red flag for me. If if the filmmaker knew that the audience could figure it out without it, then I trust them,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, I mean, in the case of Blade Runner, Harrison Ford basically just went in, did one take and left. Like there's no effort yeah. put into it at all, which shows through. Um But this was an interesting use of voiceover less so in the style of voiceover that they did, which is our main character doing the voiceover throughout the film. But what you find out is that he's, this voiceover is coming kind of from beyond the grave, right? Because he's telling the story back of what happened to him leading up to the events that start the movie off, which is we start the movie off with a dead guy floating in a pool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think that right away kind of, piqued my interest. I mean, I guess you don't know necessarily right away, but there's enough of a hint to be like, Ooh, where's this going?
0: Yeah. And now, I, I mean, I'll be honest. I didn't expect that. I had no idea that this was going to start off with, you know, the aftermath of a murder. And then we're going to rewind six months earlier and start telling that story. And it's a formula that today can feel tired because it's been done yeah. so many times, but it's movies like sunset Boulevard that set that up right? That really those, those noir films really helped to, uh, to create that trope. So it's one of those that even though I'm watching this for the first time, like I don't, I don't look at that. Yes, it's a trope, but I don't look at it as a bad thing because I can take it in the context of when this movie was made. Absolutely. So, um, I, I, do have to say that parts of what really drew me to it and really made me enjoy it was I love movies about movies. There's something about. Yes.
1: That. Oh, absolutely. I, I love, especially this era of filmmaking where, you know, it's the fifties, but it's like on the tail end of like the forties almost. And mm-hmm. then also calling back to the twenties in silent film, like the fact that it covers all those things, in a movie and critically is like very fun for
0: me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's something about the meta nature of movies about movies that, that appeals to me. And then on top of that old Hollywood, because I'm so far removed from it and all I have are old Hollywood films to watch. Like the, the idea of old Hollywood is always kind of neat for me. So then, then you can stack that on the fact that this is old Hollywood talking about older Hollywood and silent film era stuff too. So it was just like layering all these different things on top that just made me enjoy it more and more the further this, the further along things got.
1: And how rapidly things were changing and how quickly, and I think this is still the case, but in the movie it felt like they were very quick to dismiss and downplay the accomplishments of the previous era, like whenever the main character was talking about like, oh, the old you know, uh, architecture of this time and the old movies of this time. And you're like, that wasn't that long ago then though. Cause this is the fifties. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just interesting, like how quickly things were evolving and changing and how quickly they were to like, uh, look back on something, um, negatively or, or downplay, uh, the, the contribution that that had to overall cinema and, and society.
0: Yeah. Although I think we still do that today in some ways, because when you think about, yeah. I mean, think about a movie like Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. That movie's 20, coming up on 20 years old now, which is <laughs> insane to me because yes, it makes me feel old. But my point kind of <laughs> is that that wasn't that long ago, and yet it was also forever ago when you look at the way films have evolved in the last 20 years and how different things are because of movies like Fellowship of the Ring and the the rest of that trilogy. So I kind of get it at the same time as it feeling like, well, yeah, but that was only, you know, you're talking, you're, she's talking about a time that was only 20 years prior, but so much had changed in that 20 years. They'd gone from silent films to talking. And I think it's kind of cool that one of the, the director that they always talk about is DeMille because he was part of both of those eras. So, right. I think that's really, really interesting. It, it, it's it's fun to go back and watch an older film like this and see the filmmaking techniques they get used to because they have a car chase in this. Mm-hmm, that's I, right. I mean, car chases is in, you know, kind of air quotes because this was before they really had the ability to shoot a car chase the way that you would see as things got along and progressed into the 60s. Um, sure. You know, at this time, all your camera is, your camera's always locked off and it's you've got dolly movements um, and like a pan and that's about it. But there was a car chase and it was, it, it not only fit in the story, but I think it helped kind of ratchet up some of the tension at that moment um, when it was needed to, to kind of move things along. So I like that. Um, and I like seeing the old uh, rear projection car stuff that always me gives too. me a chuckle. I love that. <laughs> it's so great because it's such a, it's a technique that, that worked so well at the time and had to just blow people's minds. When when you would tell them how that was done, and nowadays we look at it as like trite and cute, but I really dug it. I, I like the look of this film overall. Um, I don't know. Now I watched it on Amazon Prime. I assume you did as well.
1: I actually rented it on iTunes. I didn't oh. realize it was on Amazon Prime. So, but oh, well. eh, four dollars <laughs> well spent. It was
0: fine. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely worth four dollars. Um, but what what surprised me, I think, was the transfer. Uh, that they they were able to get. Um, It was four to three, right? So it's a, it's a square picture, which I expected Mm -hmm. uh, that happened a lot back then, but it looked gorgeous. Like it looked really good and sounded good. Um, It sounded and looked better than some movies I've seen that were 30 years newer, you know, from the eighties getting transferred and put onto streaming. So that was kind of nice looking. And I think some of that plays into it was shot black and white. So that film gets nice high contrast. Mm Hmm. Um, let's see. So we had the car chase, which again, I use chasing quotes because it's uh it's a low speed car chase, yes. but it, it also gives us our, uh, our main plot point, which was he blows a tire out and has to turn into a driveway. And it just happens to be the driveway of Norma Desmond. Um, so it's funny that the whole movie hinges on him blowing out a white wall.
1: <laughs> right. And he's kind of on the lam, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he uh, took off with his car that was at the shop that he hasn't paid the bill. And so he goes there when they're not there and he makes off with the car and then he's, you know, the tire thing happens and then he's got to hide it. Like right off the bat, there's like a lot of things going wrong for our main, you know, protagonist. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, he limps into the garage and I think it's, that's another thing that tells you what how how different of an era it was he he goes to this what looks like abandoned house and just (laughs) stuffs his car into the garage and is going to take off like you wouldn't do that today at all Um, right you know it's just such a different era but then he you know he gets called into the house and that's when things really take a turn you meet the butler uh max who i have some thoughts on uh for a little bit later as a character (laughs) And uh, and we meet <laughs> Norma Desmond. And Norma Desmond, really, when you think about it, this movie is about her. It's really focused on Norma, and at least that's what I felt. Um, was she was the centerpiece of it because it was about kind of Hollywood and moving on, but keeping hanging on to that that star. And she would have probably let it go had it not been for Max. Max kind of fed her delusions for years.
1: Yeah. I felt like this movie in some ways was sort of like the closest thing a female version could be of this time to like citizen Kane
0: Mm. because
1: there's just like a level of, yeah, disconnect from reality because she's so rich and so accomplished. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's sort of in one of those places of like believing your own press but then there's like a deep irony between her character and the main character and how much I feel like they actually have in common that they don't that the main character never really recognizes till the end, I think. But also, um, yeah, it's definitely focused on her. And it's also like you were talking earlier about how old Hollywood things were evolving very quickly and changing and like, you know, things got dated very quickly. Um, And that affects, obviously, the silent film stars who, you know, were really big stars. But then when we moved to, you know, talkies, um, they couldn't always keep up. And then also she's getting older. So, you know, women, especially back then. Uh, you know, had a very short shelf life and career compared to men. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also sort of a maybe the whole movie is a little bit of a critique on how quick we are to be so dismissive of the past. Um, because I feel like that theme just keeps coming up over and over, not just with her character, but with some of the other characters, too. And oh, just, definitely. you know, a general fear of getting old.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I do want to point out. So she's 50 years old in this movie. Okay. Norma, right. Norma Desmond and the actress that played her, um, and why the name Gloria Swanson, I don't know why that name just disappeared from my head for a second there, but she was about 49, 50 years old when they made this. So she's playing the, the right age to give you an idea of for, especially through the lens of today of how silly it sounds to think of her as a washed up actress that hadn't worked in what, what was it supposed to be like 20 something years? Yeah. Um, yeah. Fifty years old. Just a couple of names that I looked up and found were Melissa McCarthy, Jennifer Connelly, Heather Graham, Rachel Weisz, Uma Thurman, Tina Fey, and Minnie Driver are all fifty years old right now. And it would be like has changed. (laughs) Yeah, it would it would be like us having not seen Uma Thurman in a movie for twenty years, like since Kill Bill Volume One, or something, or around that time. Like she just stopped getting work for some reason. It's just it's it's amazing how much has changed and yet some of it hasn't because we still there is still this kind of divide of the roles that women are able to get as they age are different from the roles that men are able to get. It's changing sure. thankfully. Um but it it you know there's still a ways to go, I would say. But oh, I just, it blew my mind when I started looking up 50 year olds. And then I looked at, you know, a whole bunch too. There were some other, uh, Matt Damon is 50 years old. Um, right. Charisma Carpenter <laughs> is 50 years old. I don't know how that happened. Cause I didn't think she was, uh,
1: some people are like ageless. It's incredible. You know, yeah. they're like, there's, there's a lot of like Paul Rudds out there that like just don't seem to age.
0: Yeah. And that's just not fair. Right. <laughs> So yeah, uh, there is that kind of underlying thing of like age and aging out and this idea that somebody – because they also sort of touch on the fact that she was difficult to work with towards the end because she became such a big star that that she would start to demand things, start to believe her own press. And that fed into kind of her downfall too. So there's a little bit of that and we see the continuation of that with Max who – you know we get the revelation that he was her director or one of her directors but also her first husband and that was kind of strange to me in a way because okay hold on just a moment
1: it isn't hey. it isn't though right because i feel like that happened a lot back then where and and i think it's bad when a director you know picks hand picks a star makes her a big star dates her marries her There's a huge power imbalance with that to begin with that I don't love, but also it seemed like that happened a lot, Um, and there's sort of a there's a creepiness to that on both ends. But in this movie, I felt like you know we get some weird scenes with like her fans that are older because like I noticed when they're when they go to Deville's uh, or Demille uh, when they go to his set and all the actors there they're a lot older. And Mm -hmm. then they see her, they see Nora and they like rush to her and she's like, see, I still have all these fans. Um, There's like a weirdness to that fan to actress relationship. And I think there's a weirdness with the director to starlet relationship. And I felt like they were just sort of like exploring all that with this. And, you know, the key I think that connects all of them is just like fame, like this weird level of fame she achieved, apparently. Um, But it was a long time ago.
0: Well, and it, it's it's funny because you have so Max uh, Max von Mayerling is the character uh, played by Eric von Stroheim, and he was a director of hers and her first husband. And then you have Cecil B. DeMille playing himself, who was another one of her directors. And it's it's interesting to see the the two different relationships she's had with them, because you have the one who did marry her, who was her husband for a while, and then apparently watched her marry two other people. Um, But it was the one that discovered her at 16, right? But then DeMille is the one that she idolizes, that she is all about working with again. So it's, she doesn't, I I don't think that she takes, it's hard to say. She kind of takes Max for granted in a lot of ways. Um, But she also, I think, does so because she doesn't understand what he's doing without her knowledge, with the whole sending of fan letters that he's writing and or repurposing or whatever he's doing for, for that. And, uh, and, and other things, you know, screening all her phone calls. So she doesn't get any bad phone calls, that kind of stuff. So he's very protective of her and it is a little strange. Um, but I think what makes it strange is the fact that he was her husband and now is watching, you know, this other man with her. I don't know. It, it's, it's an odd setup. But for some reason in the movie, in the context of the movie, it kind of works. I don't know. It's it's strange.
1: That is a deeply compassionate take on Norma. I did not even think of that that way. But you're right. He is enabling her, but to an extreme. I mean, mm-hmm. for somebody to screen every single call, look at every single or handwrite all those letters I mean, sure, Norma is clearly like needs help, (laughs) but Max, I mean, what is he doing? And yeah, it's like maybe they both got so caught up in this one moment of their lives, whatever that means for them, they just can't let it go. And like somehow her success and her level of stardom is the place Max also wants to be instead of his own accomplishments, which is very weird. But it does seem like maybe that's it's like they're both stuck in that one moment in time in like the 20s when she was really famous and they're never going to leave that spot no matter what. You know, even though the whole house is like decaying, everyone has left um, and the whole world has moved on. But they keep just talking obsessively about the past. And until you get that reveal about Max being her first husband, I actually said at one point in the movie, I was like, why doesn't she just date him? Clearly he's obsessed with her. (laughs) And then when you finally find out, you're like, "Oh, wow!" You know, like for a while, I could be like, "Oh, you know, trusty friend, uh, you know, faithful servant. He's he's doing sweet things by writing these notes and all that stuff." But yeah, when you get to the end, you're like, "This went from sweet to to real weird." And yeah,
0: it does. It does. I get don't know a what to think about that. There. <laughs> there's there's a lot to unpack. There is yes. what we'll say. Because it is, they, she reached this height of stardom, and what's interesting is the there's that line when so one of my favorite scenes is when they pull up to the um, Paramount studio in the car when she's going to go meet with Demille, she's decided yes. to do that. That scene is great in that it's so well paced out and written where they they pull up and the you know he's honking the horn and the security guard comes up and it's like what do you want and you know of course Max is going to say hey I've got Norma Desmond here because he just worships the ground that she walks on. And the security guard's like, Norma, who? She happens to notice the older security guard gets them to let him in um, because she's got all sorts of pull. And that line she gives, which is, teach your friend some manners. Without me, he wouldn't have a job. Is interesting because Gloria Swanson was like the top star for Paramount for like six years or something when she was in uh, silent films. So
1: there is something deeply sad to me about not being able to recognize the contributions people make. And I kept thinking about that throughout the movie. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the director that she's so enamored with, he was able to stay relevant into his later years. But he, he even has a moment, I think, in the scene where he's realizing he's getting older. And I feel like the the his assistant guy, the guy that I think called Norma is Mm -hmm. like vying for his job. Um, It's almost like he's waiting for him to die, like a buzzard buzzing around him. I don't know, like, I feel, again, like there's a lot of things like that that happen throughout the movie that I, I, maybe this is just like a personal thing I'm feeling, but it's (laughs) like, um, you know, not being able to recognize all the work that someone put in. um, For sure, Norma is out of her mind. Mm -hmm. Um, But she, she, weirdly has a point and I feel like that point keeps coming up and I don't know I wonder if Billy Wilder was talking about himself on some level in this movie too like recognizing that he'd had a long career um although he continues way after this but you know it's like I wonder what all that meant
0: yeah it is interesting because Hollywood and entertainment industry as a whole is such a what have you done for me lately thing right it's not you can have a career like a Sean Connery or a Michael Caine or somebody where you've been known for decades. But at a, at certain points throughout that, it's always the, what was the last thing you made and wasn't any good? William Holden, who's the main, who's Joe Gillis in this, was experiencing that exact thing. He had made a movie in 1939 called The Golden Boy and was, then had a string of mediocre films in the 40s. This is what brought him back. Um, was working with... Billy Wilder and doing this film and that got him into hit like the best stretch in his career, uh, in the fifties. Um, and that was after, uh, you know, having just downturn where it's like he was, he went from literally being the golden boy of Hollywood to nobody caring about him over the next few years. And I, I, I feel like it's more so then than it is now.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think now you have all these options, you know, streaming Mm -hmm. TV, uh, ways to reinvent yourself, but back then I think it was pretty narrow, and there just weren't as many projects, you know, to no, no, be weren't. available for. But I think you, you, you know, what you touched on with the actor, I think that really comes through in his performance because I feel like the whole movie, he's in sort of a level of denial himself because, you know, like in the beginning of the movie, I noticed because back then, like when you watch these noir films, like everyone is so sharply dressed. But his suit is, like, too big. It's baggy. Mm-hmm. It's, like, poorly tailored. Um, throughout the movie, he keeps talking about how, you know, things aren't going his way and how he hasn't had that level of success. And he is older. And he's older than some of the other characters in the movie that are at the start of their career. And he's really jealous of that. Yeah. And, or he has, like, a best friend that has made it that he's, you know, very jealous of, wants his girlfriend. Um Mm. You know, so he's sort of, in some ways, mirroring what Norma's going through, even while criticizing her. Um, and I don't feel like that's an accident. There are times in the movie, like, I just have trouble even feeling bad for him, you know?
0: Oh, absolutely. No, he, it's interesting because he is our, kind of our protagonist. Much like with Norma, where there's moments where you really feel bad for her, but then you, you also see how far she slipped into madness at that point. Yes, that it's hard it it's also hard to feel sympathy but with with Joe it's hard to feel that that sympathy because you see him take actions that don't make any sense and yes there's times where he's trying to be the virtuous guy and he's trying to do the good thing but then he'll do something like call um Betty over to the house and walk her around and give her this whole grand thing of like look kid it's not going to work out like i that that whole scene was very strange to me um
1: I, I, yeah, I think he was saying like, I've picked what I can accomplish and what I can do is be the delusion of Norma. I'm not going to be able to survive off my talent. (laughs) So you might as well leave, I guess. But yeah, that was a weird scene.
0: Well, I could Um, see that being the case, but then he immediately goes upstairs after she leaves and starts packing, packing his things to leave Norma. So he had made up his yeah. mind that he wasn't even going to stick around for Norma anymore. So that was that was what made that feel even stranger to me was he huh. was basically yeah, maybe, just cutting everything.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess maybe he was going to completely start over. Maybe he through the experience he had watching what Norma was going through, uh maybe he thought, you know, I got to get out of this business. <laughs> Period.
0: Yeah. I think so. Um we talked about Billy Wilder and how he had uh you know, you were wondering if maybe this had something to do with his career and all he had worked with Charles Brackett who co-wrote this with him on 17 screenplays. This was the 17th one.
1: He has some of my favorite, you know, noir films like double indemnity. Um, you know, not a noir film, but a great comedy. Um, some like it hot, Mm -hmm. um, just such an incredible career for sure.
0: But what's, what's crazy is, so this was the 17th screenplay. The two of them had worked on together and also the last one they worked on together. Because they oh. had a disagreement over the montage. Um, that montage where Norma is getting all the beauty work done.
1: Um, yeah.
0: They apparently disagreed to the point where uh, Billy Wilder just said, that's it. I'm never going to work with you again. And didn't for the rest of their careers. Wow. They didn't work together. That's so
1: dramatic. I like, know. To throw away a whole friendship over that just seems so weird. But maybe they had you know, disagreements we don't know about before then. But ah, oh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, something. There had to have been something brewing for that because you don't work with somebody on seventeen different projects over the course of probably you know twenty something years and then just end it over one thing. For sure. um, Yeah, I mean, Billy Wilder definitely directed some some pretty good stuff. Uh, The Apartment was another one. Yes. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, uh, I need to watch. I don't know if it's any good or not, but the private life of Sherlock Holmes, it's Sherlock Holmes and I haven't seen it yet. So I have to put that on my <laughs> list because everything Sherlock Holmes, I just eat up. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed I had some questions, though. So, OK, we talked a little bit about Max and how he's kind of a an odd character and there's a problematic relationship, I feel like, with him and Norma there's some problematic relationship stuff going on too with Joe and Betty. And
1: I agree. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Yes.
0: So, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I understand where they were going from a plot point, uh, point of view, which was we need to create some form of tension and a reason for Joe to leave Norma. Okay, fine. I understand that part of it, but number one what happened to Artie? Right. Cause Artie who baby Jack Webb, by the way, I, the, I actually have, I watched it twice because I had to watch it a second time to take some, some more notes and get some audio clips. And the first time through, it took me a while before I realized that was Jack Webb. I don't know because I'm so used to seeing him when he was older that I was like, Oh, yeah. Oh crap. It's Joe Friday. Okay. But what <laughs> happened with Artie? Because here she is, she, she goes from, Hey, I'm getting, I'm engaged to Artie. And the next time we see her, She's fawning all over Joe, and wanting to leave Artie for Joe because she's no longer in love with Artie, and you got Joe sort of not stopping her, but at the same time trying to like, I, I it felt like a like a like a put on for him to be like you need to stay away you know it's not going to work out type of thing. It just something oh, didn't absolutely. feel right there that that whole relationship. On top of the fact that there's about a ten year age gap there which her being well, 21, 22, and he's supposed to be, I don't know how old he's supposed to be. I know um, William Holden was about 31 when they made it. But that's, a, that's another thing with Hollywood. that
1: <laughs> For sure. But I think it's intentional in this case because I think that Joe's relationship to Betty is sort of like Norma's relationship to him in some ways because I felt like Joe you know, had that friend already, and Artie's, like, doing well, right? Mm-hmm. And he's got this hot young girl because Artie's also older than Betty. True. Um, and then the other thing is, so I think he wants what Artie has. And I think the closest thing he can get is his girlfriend. Um, and I think she's interested in in Joe because Joe is a writer and she's a writer. Um, and she thinks of him. She's very, like, enamored and looks up to him. Mm-hmm. Um And so I think she kind of always wanted to leave. And I even felt like when she said, I'm engaged to Artie, it was sort of like, hey, you didn't make a move. So now I'm engaged. And then with Joe, I think he looks at Betty like under two different lenses. Number one, he she represents being young again, uh, Mm -hmm. where he used to be when he was at. He even says that you're at the start of your career. Yeah. She keeps saying, I need your help. I need you to help me. And he's very resistant uh, to that. But I think, you know, for her, um, sorry, okay, (laughs) talking too much Uh, for her, like, he represents job opportunities, not just um, a relationship. And so sometimes I even wondered about her motives for being with him, uh, would shifting from Artie to him further her career and give her more, uh, you know, agency, um, because they would actually work together and she wouldn't just be like the wife. And then also for Joe, so she represents, you know, young talent that he wishes he still was, and then, she, you know, if he marries her, you know, she's a hot young wife. I mean, I think it's like both those things. And to me, that was really obvious when, you know, we're at the New Year's Eve party for Norma, uh, which is completely dead. It's just the two of them. Mm-hmm. He sneaks out and goes to the one that Betty's at and Artie's at. Everyone there is super young, they're drinking, they're partying, and he looks old there, I think. Yeah. I don't think he belongs there. And he's there with a bunch of very young creatives who are, like, full of hope and, like, ready to start their careers. And he's already all, all too old to be there. And his career did not take off like theirs. So I think Betty is, like, a chance at getting to live vicariously through her and gain some success. And then I also think he just, yeah, he wants a, a hot young life that... His yeah, that's friend a good point. was able to get
0: that. That's a really good point. And, and you mentioning that, you know, she kind of drops the, I'm engaged to Artie as almost like a, you had your shot and didn't take it is an interesting thought too. Cause I didn't, I, I hadn't even thought of that. Um, yeah, it, you're right in that their relationship does mirror things a little bit. And, and it, it sort of semi mirrors what's going on between him and Norma from the opposite side where yeah. he gets to be the older one. That's trying to cling on to something that that he feels like he's losing or has lost, and Betty sort of represents that in a way. So he's struggling with that too. So he's, you know, Joe is really struggling with both ends of that, both sides of that coin. So it can be. Yeah, I mean, he's
1: kind of washed up. He's he's broke. He can't even get his car out of the shop. So I think too, whenever the, the reason why you know she's like always pushing him to be successful, and he really is resistant is probably because he's done that a bunch of times. <laughs> and he's like, "You think the world of me and that's wonderful, but that doesn't mean I've actually got it." And I think he's like, "You know, I could just stick stick with Norma and be rich essentially." Mm-hmm. Um those are all the things that he desires, is that level of fame and notoriety and um you know, being comfortable. But the only way he thought he could get that on his own, and the only way he can get it is through Norma, he thinks at this point. He's like, just and then, yeah, I think he has sort of a, a character arc where he, he becomes a little bit more noble, you know, breaks it off with Betty, stops lying to her in, in some ways, you know, making her think that he's got his shit together. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, but also tries to break things off with uh, Norma and just maybe try to live honestly <laughs> for a little while.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's ready to, by the end of the movie, he's ready to head back to Dayton. He's he's done with Hollywood, and unfortunately, yeah. uh, he's permanently done with Hollywood and Dayton. So, you know, right. kind of how it goes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting because he does struggle with that a little bit. You have to think the allure of, like, all that money and status that he could get by being with Norma is is slightly intoxicating because here is this guy, you mentioned it, and I actually had a note about his clothing because at the time for, for the time it looks frumpy, right? Cause it's, you know, the jacket's yeah. a little bit too big. The pants are a little bit baggy, but he's wearing, he's wearing a sport coat and a collared shirt, which by today's standards would be slightly dressing up at least trying for a sure. little bit. Um, yeah, but then he gets taken to places where he's getting things tailored for him and, and all this, like there's, there's some allure to that and there's some draw for that. You have to think for him. Um, That he he's struggling with he's struggling with do I continue to do this or not and this is a woman who has lots of means. I mean she mentions at one point that she bought that car she has for $28,000. I did the math and with inflation that is $426,000 in today's money.
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, it's intoxicating. This is this was his goal. I mean, he wanted to be a writer in Hollywood. He thought this was going to be—he should have been there by now. By now, I think, in his mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, and because he's so down and out, I mean, yeah, who wouldn't be won over by that? But the trade-off, of course, is doing whatever the heck she wants and being her servant, essentially. Um, and he wrestles with like the morality of that and what yeah. it takes—the sacrifice it takes to get what he wants, you
0: know? Well, yeah. Cause he starts off with the idea that I'm just going to, I'm going to milk her for some money, right? I'm going to get some money out of her for taking on this rewrite job and do it for a couple of weeks. And, and it be suddenly, you know, it becomes more and more. And before he knows it, he's stuck there essentially, and he can't get out of it. He's getting in too deep and he doesn't know how to get out of it. Right. Because he needs that. He needs that security blanket of, of the means with which to continue living in LA and living in Hollywood, but he's not getting any real money out of it. She's buying everything. She's supplying him with all this stuff, but he's never getting what he was kind of angling for at first, which was just cash. He was hoping to get some cash out of her for a couple of weeks and then move on. But she roped him in, in a way that he couldn't get out. And then slowly over time he realizes, Oh, she's actually got a thing for me now. And, then he struggles with that. So there's there's a lot of layers to it that are interesting to think about, especially through the lens of today and how how different the world is today.
1: Well, and she's very Norma is emotionally emotionally man. I can't talk. To her, emotionally manipulative too. Oh, very much um, so. And. I don't know like did you get the sense watching this I've seen this kind of plot come up a couple times with like a rich widow or you know in this case a rich starlet Um, I feel like before this era there weren't a lot of opportunities for women to amass this kind of wealth and a part of me wonders with that is there some fears about what women are going to be like if they have all this wealth and It's interesting that, you know, she's so rich and all that. But one of the main ways she manipulates Joe is when she has, like, her suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. Uh, She turns on the waterworks. And I've always felt like that's kind of an old-fashioned idea of of men being, like, weak at the sight of women crying. Oh, huh. Absolutely. That really, you know, that really – he can't help but respond to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and she knows it. Yes, it it feels like she's done that a bunch of times, right? Like every time a guy tries to leave, she pulls this whole, you know, act, whether she's 100% uh, cognizant of it or it just works. And so she does it. um, We don't know. But Mm. yeah, I mean, it's definitely even in the best case scenario, it's manipulative to say, you know, I'm going to end my life if you don't stay here.
0: Yeah. Oh, there's definitely a lot of manipulation that goes on uh, from her that I noticed, and it. What's what's strange about it is, or not really strange, but what you have to wonder is how much of it is she doing, uh, consciously versus subconsciously, because she is a woman of means. She has. She talks about having a million dollars, plus, yeah. real estate plus oil, right? So again, Gosh. you're talking okay. about if this is 1950 that cash alone a million dollars is somewhere around 10 plus million dollars in today's money on top of who knows how much that real estate would be worth. Who knows how much that oil would be worth. That was the one where I was like, okay, this lady's got money. She's not rich. Mm-hmm. She's wealthy. So you have to wonder, not only does she have the, the financial means to pretty much get whatever she wants to, but because she was such a big star And such a well known name for however long a period of time it was in her youth. And with the way that Hollywood can be when it comes to stars and the gravity that they have with people. I mean, we saw, we see that in that scene where she goes back to the studio, the light gets on her, and everybody crowds around her. Now, some of it is the novelty Mm -hmm. of, hey, it's normal. We haven't, nobody's seen her in however many years. But still, she has that much gravity to pull that many people in just appearing on the set she's not even part of the production that right that that manipulation some of that has to be subconscious where she doesn't even realize that what she's doing is necessarily manipulative it's just something that's always worked for her so i wonder about that because some of it is calculated you can see it in her performance in gloria swanson's performance you can see the calculation that went into some of those moves that she was pulling um, but sure. but then there's other times where it's she just lost. And that's that slip into madness that she's going through throughout the entire movie.
1: Well, and also the weirdness of, you know, with old Hollywood, a lot of these stars started so young. And I mm. feel like, you know, when we think about people like, you know, Judy Garland um, mm. becoming famous, you know, this character becomes famous at 16. So she's a child, essentially surrounded by adults. Yeah. Yeah. Um, making every move for her and i think when you look at like how actresses retreated back then particularly if they're underage um yeah you wonder like what does that do to a person right and there have been several like sad stories of uh you know starlets that were so famous during that time and then a lot of the problems that probably affected them back then come out later um And I kind of wonder if she's a victim of that too. So she seems very manipulative and is, uh, was some of that learned from her own experience, you know, uh, in Hollywood. Because she's sort of been in a bubble her whole life, right? Mm -hmm. Of being super famous, everyone telling her what she wants to hear and praising her constantly and being surrounded by fans. Um, Yeah, what does that do to a person? You know, Uh, the rest of us have no idea. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a mystery. It's like, how much is she actually responsible for? I mean, definitely a lot of it, but I don't know. I don't know. And and the stuff you said about Max, really, I'm sorry, but that just like, wow, I have to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) I really like it because I had not even thought of it from that angle of him being, I mean, he's older than her and he was her first director and husband and. Yikes. Yeah. How much is he responsible for?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Cause he just keeps feeding it and making it worse uh, because he can't, it's this weird idol worship that he has of her where he, he almost doesn't feel like he can function if she's not the center of the world. So he's created a situation where she can always feel like she is, which is just going to feed into her psychosis even more and make it that much worse. But he doesn't understand that because he doesn't see that part of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah. I think one thing we haven't mentioned yet that I liked about this movie is, you know, it is a noir film and I love that. But it's spooky. Like, there's a lot of spooky stuff that happens. Downright creepy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Max's relationship with her, I think, really feeds into plays up that aspect of it to where it's kind of like, I guess if you really sit around and break it down, it would be a lot for one person to do all that. But. It's kind of fun and creepy
0: too. Well, It would be a lot for one person to do all that, but it's literally all he does. So true. if you were able to spend your, every every moment of every day at, on one task or one set of tasks like that, <laughs> you could pull it off. Like it wouldn't yeah, be that difficult. Um, <laughs> you mentioned stuff that's creepy and, and I have an audio clip I want to play because this was a moment um, that actually was very creepy for me and it was... To set this up, Joe is reading his book and this is when Norma comes out and she's got some of the beauty stuff on and she doesn't want him to look and she just came out to say good night and she's asking him about where he went and when he says, I'm not doing anything wrong and she says this. I wouldn't let you. I was like, Okay. It's all like right.
1: Dracula almost is creepy, that scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's I the, the she's one angry. Yeah. And that's like, that's where it's very calculated, right? That's a that's a Norma that is fully aware of what she's doing and what she's saying. And very, that, that's what makes it so creepy.
1: It is. Can we talk about one more creepy scene that we haven't mentioned yet is the monkey (laughs) in the beginning.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I want to know the backstory of this, this chimp. I really do because where did, where did he come from? Why did she have him for how long? Because what a weird, weird way to introduce the characters of Max and Evelyn or I want to keep calling her Evelyn Um, (laughs) Norma where they're having they're planning the funeral for her chimpanzee.
1: Well, and like before that, doesn't she casually like, oh, I want you to replace this or do this. And then you see the dead monkey there, and you're like, what? And it's been dead a long time?
0: Yeah, it looks like, it look, certainly does look like that. <laughs> um, yeah, that was an interesting scene because, you know, obviously it's a mistaken identity thing. She thinks he's the mortuary guy here with the coffin. Yeah. Um, which had the other creepy line, which was uh, where'd it go? This one.
1: If you need any help with the coffin, call me. I
0: was like, okay, I'll, I'll write discount a. Um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. We can uh, we can work <laughs> with that because that they, he reminded me of Hitchcock a lot in some of those
1: scenes. Yes, I, and the monkey thing. I my theory is that was her quote unquote son. Um, mm. It sort of reminded me a little bit also just in the side of like Michael Jackson and his animals and his kind monkey. of yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I felt like the the monkey was some sort of surrogate child, and because she didn't have any children. And uh, I think he died a long time ago and she's just now having him buried. And there's just a whole nother level of weirdness to that. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's just a clue to him or should have been this woman is not right (laughs) and maybe leave. But he doesn't. He ignores this. Clear red flag.
0: Well, so he's got the red flag of like, he's looking out over the grounds of this this mansion, right? And he sees the, what? how do you refer to it? The skeleton or the ghost of a tennis court. And there's the yeah. empty swimming pool with rats in it. And then she sees, or he sees her and Max walking the coffin out with with oh. the, the chimp in it <laughs> and burying it in the yard. And that's not enough because then he wakes up the next morning to all of his belongings being in the room that he's in I wouldn't have even gone in to talk to anybody I would have just packed everything up and walked out
1: (laughs) yeah again I don't know why but it weirdly reminds me of like Dracula and like the way he treated uh, the main character in that movie Mm -hmm. uh, the lawyer or whatever Um, yeah it's so obvious that he should just leave (laughs) but yeah he's desperate I mean
0: that's the only reason he would stay that is very um, true. Desperate. Desperation will make you do some crazy stuff.
1: And a little delusional himself because, like, he keeps being like, oh, this is so sad. Look how sad she is. Meanwhile, he's there. <laughs> you yeah. <know>? Right, exactly. <laughs> he lacks some self awareness, especially in the
0: beginning. <laughs> um, I do want to mention, because I would be remiss if I didn't, how good Gloria Swanson's performance is as Norma. She is just fantastic throughout this whole thing. She's melodramatic and over the top and it's it's so much but it's such a good performance Um, i
1: mean this is why i was saying at the beginning that maybe i like this for the wrong reasons i just thought she was awesome i mean she's such a fun villain and what a great character for an actress to play i mean Mm -hmm. once in a lifetime opportunity a script that doesn't come up ever probably for women so I absolutely loved her performance and she is so charismatic and captivating and her, like you said, it's very big cause she's supposed supposed to be like a 1920 star. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so wonderful to watch that it's like, you can't help but like her and hate her. And I mean, that's just the mark of a good performance and a good villain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Gloria Swanson was a silent film star. She was, ah. she, so it, the role wasn't written for her, but she very much fits what the role was. She was a silent film star. She was actually one of the top Paramount stars for a number of years um, during the silent film era, and she was largely out of worksheet. But unlike Norma, who couldn't let go of her stardom, Gloria Swanson actually had like moved on. She had moved from L.A. to New York, and she was doing radio work and some television stuff. And she was like, look, Hollywood's not going to cast me anymore, so I'm going to go find other work. And it's funny because after this movie, she started getting offers for more stuff, but it was a lot of kind of knockoff versions of Norma. And (laughs) I understand that, but it sort of, you know, it bummed her out because she wanted to do more. But people found it interesting how different Gloria Swanson the person was from the character of Norma Desmond because she's apparently not she wasn't like that at all um
1: oh I but think she was so good at from, it yeah i think you could tell from her performance this is a woman who is so comfortable with herself i mean mm-hmm. to be able to play this character and sort of in some ways like meta poke fun at herself i mean you'd have to have like a lot of confidence to do that right and oh yeah i think that really comes through um you know, it's great that she was able to be both, you know, a silent film star and, and such a compelling actress um, after that, too. Um, and the fact that she had made her peace with all this and moved on uh, is probably why her performance is so good. She, I'm sure she understands some of that emotion that the character feels, but having that kind of, you know, distance from it that she had. Um, I'm sure helped a lot too. Um, oh, definitely. But yeah, she, it, it's it's just so wonderful. And it's a shame. You know, I think back in, in the 50s, I'm sure they couldn't really think of an, another role for a woman because that's always been my complaint about in the past roles for older women, they're almost always like witches. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, if they're beautiful, they're evil. It's impossible to be a good looking older woman who isn't evil. I mean, that's just not... Oh right of course for some reason um and so i don't think hollywood could think of a lot of roles for her back then um it would be different now but back then yeah i I can understand why she was pigeonholed um if she's not playing someone's mom or sweet you know grandma then there's literally nothing else for her to play except like an evil woman
0: (laughs) yeah yep uh A couple of trivia bits that I thought were interesting about Gloria Swanson was um, she almost considered rejecting the role because Billy Wilder wanted her to do a screen test. And her friend who had suggested her for the part told her, if you, if they want you to do 10 screen tests, do 10 screen tests. Because if you don't, I will personally shoot you. (laughs) And so she decided to (laughs) go for it anyway. But I also like this one. Her daughter had said that uh Gloria stayed in character throughout the entirety of the shoot and she would come home speaking like Norma Desmond. Um and on the oh. last day of shooting, Swanson drove back to the house and she, her mother and her daughter, uh saying, There's only three of us in the house now. Norma has Norma has left the building. So talk about method acting. Like there's method Seriously. acting and then there's method acting. That is some I know. Daniel I'm sure Day her Lewis. Love that. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Like that is some Daniel Day Lewis level stuff right there. Um, it is. And uh, let's see, there was a couple others that I thought were were pretty. In- well, Paramount was happy to have their name all over the the film, which it's a Paramount film. But there there's nothing like it's it's interesting because it sort of talks bad about movie studios, but not not overtly. So Paramount was just all about like yeah, yeah, use the name, whatever, it's fine. Um. Which I always find interesting because some movie studios don't like that.
1: Well, it's a little like, look at what we've done. Look yeah. at how long we've been here.
0: Yeah, um, so in point. some
1: ways, it, it's pretty positive for them.
0: Uh, let's see. Cameron Crowe, wh- who shadowed Billy Wilder in his in his later years, uh, said a typical day at the office would consist of him answering numerous phone calls from people requesting to remake this film. And he would inform them <laughs> he he didn't own the rights and hang up. <laughs>
1: That's hilarious. Which,
0: I have something to follow up with that on in a moment, but I have one more trivia bit, and that was Cecil B. DeMille agreed to do his cameo in this film for $10,000 and a brand new Cadillac.
1: Huh. When Interesting Billy, that a car is involved in yeah. the
0: scene. Uh, when Billy Wilder went back later to secure a close-up, DeMille charged him another ten grand. So Wow. Yeah. And I guess... Uh, oh, and DeMille also... So Hedy Lamar, they were gonna do a cameo with her in it, and she was shooting uh Samson and Delilah, which is the film they're shooting with Cecil B. DeMille on that set. And so it wouldn't have been an issue to have her, you know, step into a quick cameo, but DeMille was like, Yeah, but you gotta pay her twenty five grand to be here. So <laughs> that So makes old, sense. old Cecil was uh was all about getting that money.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I mean he knew what he was worth. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's true. When you're, when you're Cecil B. DeMille, you can demand stuff like that. Um, so on the, on the subject of remakes and people calling Billy Wilder constantly wanting to do a remake of this movie, I got thinking about it. And number one, there is a remake supposedly in the works. However, it's not a remake of the film. It's a, it's a screen adaptation of the musical that was adapted yeah. from this movie. Interesting. So I did I that's not, that's going to be fun. Yeah. I had, n- I know nothing about it outside of, I think there was a director named and the director had like four credits to his name and it was all stage stuff. So, huh. um, but it got me thinking if you were to do a modern day remake of sunset Boulevard, there'd have to be some changes made to it. Obviously sure. number one, because it would be boring to just remake the film, you know, <laughs> shot for shot. I mean, we're not doing a Gus Van Sant, uh, psycho here or anything like that. Um but I I I'm wondering what would you change and then kind of what direction would you go in terms of casting because if we're if we're looking at it from the aspect of okay so somebody who is older and quote unquote washed up but still hanging on to that stardom and then you have somebody who isn't old yet but Old in terms of Hollywood and hasn't made that, that splash yet. So they're, you know, probably in their thirties or forties and haven't made, uh, kind of that, that name for themselves in Hollywood, the way that they would want to, whether they're a writer or an actor or something. Um, and I'm just curious where you would kind of go in, in terms of, or if you, if you think about that at all, or had any time to think about it, where, where would you go with say the older person? Would you, would you, continue to have it be an older woman who's washed up or maybe an older man or, or how, how would you want to go in that direction? How would you modernize something like this?
1: Wow. Um, I do think it's a challenge to modernize it just because I do think so much has changed since then. Um, is it too much of a cheat to say I wouldn't want to change too much of it? No, Um, no, not at all. And it, The only thing I could think of is, like, when we were watching it, I felt like her performance was very, like, in some ways, um, Tim Curry-esque a la Rocky Horror. Like, just really big and out there. And I would love to see, like, a drag take on that character. Um, But I don't know how you'd make a whole movie out of that, necessarily. Unless you're just kind of, like, you just do it. You just go for it. Um, In terms of casting which I think is maybe a little bit easier. I, I feel like Jessica Lang in American Horror Story, that's pretty much what she was doing over and over again <laughs> in every season. And it was great. I mean, she was really good at that. So yeah. I think she'd be a good, she'd be a good, uh, um, fit for that role. And then the guy, I think that's a little harder. Cause it's like, of course I'm going to want to pick someone famous because how else would I,
0: right? How are you going to you know, give know a name? Yeah.
1: Um, it's hard to think of specifically someone off the top of my head that's faded from the spotlight just because if they have, I'm not thinking about them, I guess, as bad as that sounds. Um, no, makes but sense. I guess, you know, you could probably tap into some actors from like the 2000s, you know, our nineties. Um, but I also watching the movie got like weirdly some Vince Vaughn vibes from the main character.
0: Yeah. Um, I can see that. been a
1: little, yeah, like had he been younger, I feel like he's probably too old for that role now, but mm. um somebody like that, I guess
0: and I guess here's another question then okay, let's let's take the idea, the theme behind the movie and let's let's take it out of Hollywood. So okay. what would be another industry that something like this could work in? Could you do this with something like um, television, and maybe now you're dealing with instead of Hollywood films? you're dealing with something television related and then internet video or maybe music.
1: Um, I think music, music has not evolved the way that, you know, Hollywood has, I think. Okay. Um, You know, there are some exceptions like, you know, lately we've got like Billy Joe Eilish or, you know, Adele was an exception, but, A lot of times the people that consistently get hits are there's like a few ingredients like they're very young women. um, They are blonde or they go blonde Mm -hmm. (laughs) to sell more records. I think that's an industry where, um, you know, people people do get really pigeonholed. And you, you notice even today, like even if there's a band and there's like a front singer that's a woman, she's usually like significantly younger. So I think they have like than the rest of the band. So I feel like they have like a shorter shelf life and some people have been able to get around that, like Sia, but you never see her face. Yeah. And that's kind of like her thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And she wrote several hits for young starlets. Um, If I think of somebody that's going through something right now, I think of like Britney Spears, you know, Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I feel like the music industry that might be a better fit for today.
0: That could be that. That's an interesting take because you're right. The shelf life of especially pop stars is so short.
1: Yeah, yeah and that's... again, there's there's some there's some you know changes being made that I love, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I mentioned some of those other artists that like don't fit that mold. I love that, but I do feel like overall, it's like they for some reason we always in pop want someone between like the ages of like 16 to 25. A lot of times they're models, like Mm -hmm. it's very specific. And so when people age out of that, it's like, we need the next pop star.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I want to say, thank you. This was a great conversation about a movie that honestly I hadn't really even thought about and is kind of up my alley. So I have no excuses (laughs) to have not seen it before, but I'm glad that I did now. So um, so thank you for bringing this to my attention and, uh, suggesting this as a movie to, to watch.
1: Absolutely. The feeling is mutual. I selected it, but I didn't know like how it was going to go. And I absolutely loved it. And all your thoughts today were just so great. I mean, gave me stuff to think about, um, and really appreciate you having me on and, You helped me cross a movie off my list (laughs) that I've been meaning to get to. So, you know, definitely appreciate it.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming on. And I I put on Twitter a little bit earlier that this was part two in our I love that movie. Uh, Wait, you haven't seen crossover. I brought you Hackers. (laughs) You brought me Sunset Boulevard. I feel like that's a fair, (laughs) pretty fair uh, exchange in terms of, no, you brought a much better film. However, (laughs) I still love Hackers. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, for those of us that grew up when it came out, it's got a different... I mean, there's there's a connection there that's Absolutely. undeniable. So, yeah.
0: Well, speaking of I Love That Movie, tell people, that's the show that you do. Tell people where they can find it. What's it about?
1: Oh, yeah. So, I have a show called I Love That Movie, and each week I have a guest, and the guest picks the movie that we discuss. And, you know, it's a movie that you love. So, um, anyone can be a guest. Uh, you don't have to have previous uh, podcasting experience. I've had, you know, all ages, all backgrounds on my show, and, and I love... What I really love about doing it is I love hearing your personal stories. You know, why why do you love this movie so much? And what is your personal connection? Uh, Because there's so many review sites out there that you could get a way better review than from me. (laughs) But you will get, like, personal stories from people. And that is what I appreciate hearing the most. Um, But you can find that pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search I Love That Movie. Um, You know, we've got a website, too. I love that movie, uh, podcast.com. So, Uh, Several ways to find us and and, you know, like you said, you've been on the show, we did Hackers and that was a great episode. So y'all need to, to go check that out.
0: Yeah. And it's a great concept for a show because I love the personal side of it because you're right. There are just myriad places you can go and find reviews of movies, but, but that personal bit of like, okay, so, you know, Hackers, why do you love Hackers so much? And then I can just spout for an hour about how much I love that movie and why. And, and and I just I like that idea I like seeing and hearing these people come on and talk about because I, I do enjoy the show and I love I love hearing why people like I like positivity when it comes to movies because everybody's <laughs> going to like things for different reasons so I'm curious to know yeah. why yeah
1: and it takes the heat off me too because I'm not an expert I don't have a film degree <laughs> so it's like nobody can ever come on there and go hey wait a minute this woman doesn't know what she's talking about it's like well i don't i do some research when i listen when i watch a show i've watched several movies by now over the past three years um and i've always loved movies but yeah i like the fact that anybody can sort of be an expert you know Mm -hmm. if you love a movie a lot and you've seen it a bunch of times i think that makes you an expert on it so um I, i appreciate that part of it and yeah there's just a lot of negativity everyone's got opinions i've got Trust me, several strong opinions, uh, but it's just sort of therapy for me, I think, to just talk about something in a positive way for a whole hour or two or plus sometimes. And yeah, I get a lot out of it. I really enjoy it.
0: Absolutely. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on. We'll have to do this again. We'll find another movie that one or one or both of us haven't seen and we'll uh, we'll talk about it again. Um, yes. If you don't listen to I Love That Movie, go out and subscribe because trust me, you're going to like it. I had a great time on it. And um, so this show, I record live and stream it every Sunday night, 8 p.m. at twitch.tv slash tvstravis. And if you can, come on and, and watch the live stream of it and uh, and hop into the chat room with Ace Fury, Ace Furry and McFly and Kit London and, and talk to us. Because um, that's always fun. And then the show comes out once a week. Uh, this was episode number 89. I'm closing in on 100 episodes, and I'm kind of stoked about that. Wow. So I've got something... I'm I'm starting to plan some fun stuff uh coming up. Now next week my guest is going to be um one of my first guests I've ever had on here, Charlie. Um he was on for the very first episode and he has never seen 2001 a space odyssey.
1: What?
0: So we're going to we're going to watch that and, yeah, and I can't wait to hear what he has to say cuz seeing that movie for the first time is a it's an experience. It really it is, is. So.
1: I wish I could have seen it for the first time in a movie theater though just because like you know it it's well I mean it's like Kubrick pacing right and mm-hmm. it would be nice to like have zero distractions <laughs> watching Very it true. because of its pace but um yeah I'm anxious to to hear what he thinks
0: I am too and I have a good uh, a real fun story to tell about seeing it in a theater so that'll be that'll be cool too but uh come on back next week for that one and uh, I have to, before I before we end, if I don't play this clip, um, I didn't do this movie <laughs> justice. And this is the, one of the most famous movie quotes ever. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I had to play that because...
1: You had come to. Come on. You had I mean,
0: to. I'm contractually obligated. <laughs> um, yes. So, yeah, come on back next week for 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's going to be a fun one. And... Uh, You can find this show anywhere you get podcasts. Um, And if you do enjoy the show, leave us, uh, leave us, us, it's me, um, a uh, a review, Uh, even just uh, one or five stars or whatever, because, you know, honestly, uh, it helps make the show more discoverable and that that helps more people hear the show. So uh, word of mouth and reviews are really what helps. But until next week in 2001 A Space Odyssey, I always like to say, get out and enjoy your movies. And the world is really weird right now. So, you know, be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. You'd have turned down Gone with the Wind. No, that was me. I said, Who wants to see a Civil War picture? Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>